None of the content on this or any episode of the Kratom Science Podcast and Kratom Science Journal Club, nor on any of the pages of KratomScience.com, should be considered medical claims or medical advice. This is the Kratom Science Journal Club with Dr. Jonathan Cachet, neuroscientist and expert in psychopharmacology. In each episode, we discuss an article in a peer-reviewed journal. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. Episode 26, we're looking at another study from University of Science, Malaysia. I work down at the University of uh, Science there. Cognitive impairment in mice were found with chronic high-dose mitragynine, similar to morphine and THC, unless the mice were also given a CB1 receptor antagonist. So this is called mitragynine, parentheses, kratom-induced cognitive impairments in mice resemble THC and morphine effects, delta-9 THC and morphine effects, Reversal by cannabinoid CB1 receptor antagonism. Um, and this is from uh, the journal, I guess it's Front, uh, Frontiers in Pharmacology. And this is a team at University of Science in Malaysia. I work down at the University of uh, Science there. Mm-hmm. Uh, our good friends at University of Science. So it's a mouse study, as it says in the title. And uh, it pretty much says everything in the title. The m- mice were given low and high dose mitragynine, um, THC, and morphine, and they and then three other sets of mice or four other sets were given all these drugs with a uh, CB1 antagonist, uh, which is called NIDA four one zero two zero, and. Is that because it was developed by NIDA? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, especially cannabinoid receptor agonists and antagonists that are just, like, like I think WIN, uh, like, 1500 is another example of one. But, yeah, they're just, um, like, you know, analogs or closely resembling them uh, and activity at those receptors. In this study, the involvement of cannabinoid type 1, CB1 receptors, and cognitive deficits after chronic mitragynine exposures was investigated for 28 days um, in, I think, was 100 adult male Swiss albino mice using the IntelliCage system, which Mm -hmm. I looked that up, and it's basically... A high tech science cage. Um, <laughs> on <laughs> on their on their site, it says it fosters natural social behavior in a standardized home cage context, minimizes the need for handling and human intervention, increasing task validity, data reproducibility, ensuring high level of animal welfare. Uh, well, not in this case because they euthanize them um, after the study. Ultimately. study their brains and they all go to mouse heaven um and they have those uh rfid tags um radio frequency identification tags so they can it goes right into the uh, science machine and they could study that um right into the calculator attached yeah yeah Yeah, so these pages are, are really um 
you know, I want to say like modern marbles, but they are really like um, something that reduces the amount of handling and allows for automated data collection over a number of different endpoints that can be interpreted in different ways, which I think that this paper really um, lays out a, a good use case. Because, we, yeah, we're talking about 100 mice, like five different treatment groups. We're doing, you know, a 30-day month protocol from uh, this the uh, implantation of the RID tag. So you can like ID individual mice. Um, all the way through to sacrifice. So yeah, without you know, without the IntelliCage and that technology, this would require like someone you know marking it with like a, a, a notepad and a piece of paper and maybe multiple people every day for the, all of those thirty days. And the the data certainly wouldn't have been as dense as it is, which is which I think is um, you know I think is a is a, a good study design. And they went from the the psychopharmacology, the behavior, all the way through to the immunohistochemistry, you know, in one, and that's all laid out in this one paper. So overall, I think it's pretty impressive. Yeah, it was pretty comprehensive. And, um, and just the one thing that I kept seeing is they, I mean, even in the title it says my tragedy and kratom, so, but they're using my tragedy alone and not kratom. So, they um why why do you think they don't use like in that one study they use like lyophilized kratom tea that contained like the full spectrum alkaloids and mm -hmm. or like a full spectrum alkaloid extract why do you think they just use mitragynine i guess cuz they're I studying think, pain or whatever well i think in this case you're limiting the amount of confounding variables that you want to introduce to this so we already have like multiple pharmacological treatments, the use of an antagonist, multiple treatment groups. And so if you add on top of that, like full spectrum kratom extract, which is, you know, made from leaf into like a, a tea or whatnot, it's not very standardized. And so, yeah, the confusion there of like saying, well, metragenine is kratom is sort of misleading, but I think that their, you know, their stated goal was to elucidate mechanisms behind um, like potential exploratory behavior or cognitive in impairment or learning and memory. And uh, when you have a study of this, you know, from behavior through immunochemistry and genetic expression, um, you just want to limit your uh, like potential vectors of variability or variance. And they found it, they found with the chronic high dose mitragynine exposure but not the low dose exposure and this is all like injected into the abdomen um it potentiated preference for sucrose reward increased resistance sucrose reward increased resistance to punishment and impaired place uh learning and its reversal um and it says the same response was with thc and morphine and this is all due to its, I guess it's all due to its action on the CB1 receptor. I mean, does this, I mean, we know what THC and morphine does. Uh, Kratom, you know, has never done that same kind of thing. Like, does, does it just mean really that they're high? Is that basically well, what's happening? Well, it's a good question. Yeah, and you really like to like really digest everything that's going on in this in this paper you have to sort of like go through the results section and like the figures one by one mm -hmm. in that like at first they're establishing a baseline so um inside of these intelli cages there are corners that have access to water 
and they placed a 20% sucrose solution in one of the other corners. And so for the first couple of days, you just put the mice in there and establish their baseline activity. So what do they just do in this novel environment? And what, what first jumped out to me, at least the difference between the control groups and the treatment groups was we had um, high dose metragenine and morphine leading to elevated like uh, hyperlocomotion. So they were moving more. They were exploring the cage more frequently. And so it's, you don't necessarily call that a cognitive de deficit. You know, it's sort of like a weighted term to say that something's a deficit. So they have more activity, whereas the THC ones had less activity. So that's mm -hmm. why they were constantly comparing baseline to then later in the study, but where they, the interpretation and the study on where they were um, looking at like cognitive deficits was sort of more like probably more specifically uh, designated as like um, how quickly they were able to learn where something was. And then when they moved that something, how quickly they were able to realize it was moved and the new location. Does that make sense? Is that, you know, how you uh, read it as well? Yeah. Yeah. So Wait, is that the place preference one? Is yeah. That, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just kind of read it as they just had a harder time learning in general. I guess. I mean, for, with with the uh, with the morphine. So CB one's a cannabinoid receptor receptor, and uh, THC is an agonist. And so I guess apparently morphine and mitragynine also act on cannabinoid receptors, which. I don't think it's something we talked about before. And, I, you know, I don't necessarily think that there's a direct interaction there. Okay. Either. There's a, a lot of overlap with um, reward centers and like motivation and anticipation and planning of behaviors. Um, and I, I would guess like sort of cognitive switching between different uh, tasks at hand. Um, but what they're, what they're, what they're showing with this, with this you know, set of studies overall, behaviorally at least, is that if you block um, the activity of CB1 receptor, then the presumable uh, reduction in uh, learning time or ability to learn where the sucrose was, the place preference, um, that was, that was in, uh, no longer found. So like you block CB1 and the, the longer time or um, higher percentage of incorrect guesses that the mice um, made that were in the treatment group was no longer evident. So that's, you know, a mechanistic um, explanation for how, and I, 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 I don't want to say cognitive deficits. When I say cognitive deficits and in this paper, what they mean is it took them longer to learn um, and it took them longer to unlearn. And so, you know, by, by showing that the, that affects across different drug groups um, was modified or eliminated with the CB1 agonist, then they're demonstrating a role for CB1 receptors and CB1 receptor activity in the acquisition and subsequent relearning of these tasks. Okay, and yeah, it also said uh, significant upregulation of CB1 receptor expression was found after chronic high-dose mitragynine morphine, whereas a downregulation was observed after chronic THC. So, so what does that what does that mean? Well, so I can speculate. I don't really like sort of dig into the results section a little bit more, but like essentially, uh, one of the mechanisms proposed behind like tolerance and dependence is that. If you expose um, 
the the neurons to exogenous high concentrations of morphine the morphine receptors you know there's several different subtypes there and we're talking about cb1 here but i'm just using the analogy to get us there is that the you develop a tolerance and dependence because the the constant overactivation of those opiate receptors leads to them being pulled into the cell um and remember that was a um what do we always talk about where it's, it's a mediated response of that cellular induction. And it's like a kinase or not an interleukin, but like, um, Kratom and metragenine doesn't activate those in the opiate receptor system. So we don't see that down regulation. Um, I forget what the exact, we, we talk about it in a lot of the journal clubs though, about like, it doesn't activate this pathway. So it doesn't lead to the induction of these, uh, of these cells. So specifically here, they see an upregulation in the hippocampal. So that's sort of learning and memory and VTA is sort of, um, vigilance and alertness after a chronic high dose of metragenine and morphine. So there are more CB1 receptors expressed after chronic metragenine use and morphine use, whereas a downregulation or less receptors was observed after chronic THC. And so if you relate that back to what I was saying, like chronic THC, T, Delta 9 THC does act directly at the CB1 receptors. And if you are giving, if you're exposing those receptors to the THC you know, repeatedly over a long amount of time, it leads to an induction of them into the cell. So a downregulation of those receptors. Um, that's analogous to like opiate recept receptors and morphine. Now, why would there be an upregulation of the, um, the CD1 receptors as it relates to metragenine or morphine? There's, there's got to be like a set of skipping stones here that they probably get into. And I think they do get into in the results and discussion, but you know, essentially the, the activity of these drugs at the primary receptor led to either less activity at the cannabinoid one receptors or like less availability of agonists for those receptors. And so it led to the cells expressing more. You know I mean? It's helpful to consider all of these biological systems as like machines that are just designed to maintain homeostasis and responding to like a teeter totter effect of like, is there more, is there less, how can we establish balance again? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, what, what's eluding me in the, in the part that I didn't actually have them connect. And this maybe is because it's buried within the discussion is essentially like if they're seeing that high chronic dose metragenine and morphine and chronic THC cause these like um, impairment of their ability to learn the place preference and then relearn the place preference. Wouldn't we expect the like upregulation or downregulation of the CB1 receptors to be the same? And because mm -hmm. it's not the same, that points to a different set of like mechanistic skipping stones as to why the effect is there. Like we ultimately know that the CB1 receptor is responsible because we can extinguish the effects of the uh, slower learning by blocking the activity of the CB1 receptor. But that doesn't necessarily explain to me the details of why you, why you see it go up in the opiate or sort of narcotic category and down in the, um, the Delta 9 THC category. Yeah, it was just another question related to my tragedy alone. Could other alkaloids um, maybe inhibit its um, activity on the CB1 receptor, other alkaloids and kratom. There could be. 
Yeah. yeah. Um, but that would be, yeah. I mean, that's why they probably didn't go with the full spectrum extract because then they couldn't have been able to, they wouldn't have been able okay. to like, definitively answer that. You know, now they just know that metragenine's there. And so I thought I remember reading deep in the discussion and I, I'm looking, trying to look for my highlights in my notes here. I don't know exactly where it was. Um, let's see. The metragenine induced receptor upregulations appeared to be attenuated by the antagonist as seen in the immunohistochemical protein and mRNA studies. These findings suggest a potential mechanism for the beneficial effects of CB1 receptor agonism at the behavioral level. Um, and present results may also indicate a plausible chronic metragenine CB1 receptor interaction in inducing the transition from liking to wanting response. And that, yeah. so they're talking about behavioral sens sensitization and, and a theory underlying addiction behaviors there. Mm -hmm. um, so um, let, me, let me just finish this. Transition from liking to wanting response, which eventually culminates in the development of metragenine slash kratom addiction. Um, so I don't know, I guess that speaks to what we're, what, what we're, we're sort of talking about here, but I don't think it necessarily provides a definitive answer and nor do I think necessarily that they were, um, I think that they were just trying to establish a role of the cannabinoid receptor in these behavioral impairments. Um, not necessarily like they can do a more focused study now and perhaps get to that, uh, get to that, uh, answer. Okay, so they euthanized the mice. They looked at their, they took brain samples. Now, the first thing they said is the immunohistochemistry to investigate CB1 receptor expression. Now, what is what does that mean exactly? So the immunohistochemistry, so that staining was performed to investigate CB1 receptor expression. Is that what you yeah. asked about? Yeah. They are euthanizing the mice, usually with uh, pentobarbital and then like a, a cut to the neck, and then they very quickly. Um, dissect the brain out, and then they put the brain into, they're blocked in paraffin. Paraffin is like, um, you know, consider it just to be like epoxy. It's, it's not just epoxy. It's obviously um, like designed to um, lock in the brain structure and allow you to cut thin slices of the brain structure, but it, it also like doesn't react with the neurons or the other, like the biological tissue in any way. Um, but the immunohistochemistry would be you extract the brain, you put it in the paraffin, and you also expose it to antibodies. And so there are mm -hmm. antibodies that will detect the CB1 receptor. Um, okay. When you expose those antibodies there, the more uh, CB1 receptor there is, the more staining will occur because the stain is attached to an antibody that specifically binds to the CB1 receptor. So that, that's all they're doing there is seeing like, if I expose it to the stain and the stain only appears in areas where CB1 receptor is, then more or less stain would indicate more or less of the CB1 receptor at that particular location. And then uh, West, Western blot, what is that? Um, a Western blot is a uh, uh, along the same lines as immunohistochemistry, but it's not in situ. It's like not in brain tissue. Okay. So in these scenarios, um, it's gel electrophoresis and you basically like extract the compounds of interest from the tissue sample. You put it at the top of what is like, um, 
a, almost like a jello pad. This is a gel electrophoresis. It's obviously, of course, not jello, but it's very similar. And you put a positive current and a negative current at either end of this pad. And then you watch how the proteins migrate through that pad. And depending on um, like how polarized they are, the size of these proteins, all and, and the, the amount of amperage or voltage that you're hooking up to these probes will depend on how much it slides down. So like when you see the um, results that show like a line in, uh, let's see, uh, looking at, yeah, page uh, 14. So like figure eight, uh, figure eight A, those lines are the the blots in the uh, in the gel electrophoresis or the uh, Western blot, right? Was it, this was Western? Yeah. It's been a minute since I have been in the lab doing gel electrophoresis. There's a difference between a Western blot and like an Eastern blot, and I think there's other variants in between. I don't. Huh. It's not clear to me exactly what that is. It's but it's there is a difference there. Okay, and is this this is like. Uh looking at like genes and stuff like dna is that is that what that is yeah yeah so you and can that, look that's at what, dna fragments yeah. you can also look at proteins you can you can look at a number of, of different things in electrophoresis and, and that's basically what um quantitative real-time pcr does too looks at the dna well, so quantitative real-time PCR is a is much different than gel electrophoresis in okay. terms of how it's um, like the actual mechanism. So, uh, quantitative PCR is polymer chain reaction. But essentially, if there's a DNA fragment or several DNA fragments related to, let's say, the CB1 receptor being expressed in the tissues at that time, you put in specific enzymes and primers into the quantitative PCR. And any of those fragments that are exposed essentially result in the replication of that DNA. So you amplify or like induce replication of specific fragments that you're interested to know how much is being expressed in inside of the tissue. And the quantitative part is basically like you take it from a concentration where it's like, let's just say one fold, you go a thousand fold. And based on like the actual numbers of going from one to a thousand and the amount of time that it took, you can make in a... Uh, and like an, an assessment of the availability or how much of that RNA was currently being expressed in that tissue sample at that time. So they they will go after uh, sucrose instead of water uh, more frequently when they uh, when the mice take uh, high dose mitragynine, morphine, or THC. Is it that the drugs when they're administered kind of train them to be more reward seeking? Yeah, like more hedonistic yeah. about the whole situation. I, I I think that's the justification. Yeah, I think the idea, yeah, is that they are um, taking drugs that sort of um, enhance pleasurable activities, and these drugs must um, have some pleasurable like basis to themselves because they're continuing it. They're like seeking more of that pleasurable behavior, being more hedonistic. I also sort of share with you, I think if I'm sensing it right, just a little bit of skepticism where it's like, okay, well, you want to talk about, you know, at, at the at the front and the, the, the bookends of the paper where like Kratom is a widely abused plant. Um, it was sort of like hit drug hysteria a little bit. And so then it makes me sort of say, okay, so they went to go get sucrose more than what they normally would have, but the other mice were also you know, hitting that sucrose, is that really indicative of 
all three of these compounds just at face value are, um, you know, horribly addictive or like alarmingly addictive. I don't know if that necessarily makes that case. Yeah, I mean, oh, I mean, for the THC, it could be because they have the munchies or something. That's what I was thinking. Or they have dry <laughs> mouth, and they're just trying to get to drink more. And, yeah, and really, sure. like, the cognitive impairment, I've never, I mean, just, I've never experienced any type of cognitive impairment on Kratom. Uh, they said so, some, something about um, uh, my tragedy and other studies showed... Uh, some kind of emotional impairment, which uh, I've been, I think I've been like extra irritated because I was on Kratom, but I mean, I would have already been irritated, but it just kind of upped it. And I've seen that in some people uh, like on Twitter and stuff, <laughs> but, uh, it, but it, it it's never been like, it's never prevented me from learning anything or reading or it just seems like whereas like uh you know marijuana or maybe like i haven't done enough opioids to know have an example uh from personal use but whereas like marijuana you know i probably wouldn't smoke pot the first day i'm going into a new job and learning being trained i wouldn't right i'd want to be sober the the data that supports them saying that there was like a cognitive impairment is just it's it's pretty well laid out in uh figure four so there's the place learning and then reversal learning um and you can see and i i think this is right but i was trying to see so like the thc is that purple upside down triangle at the very bottom Mm mm-hmm um, morphine is the lime green with the right side up triangle. And then metragenine, um, high is the orange. And so the Y axis is percent of correct or percent of preference for correct corner, meaning the corner in which they're getting the sucrose reward. Mm-hmm. So these mice in their place learning phase were more frequently incorrect in going back to the water bottle that had the sucrose in it. Whereas like you could see on all the other lines that sort of fade up to the top, like once these mice realized where the sucrose was, they pretty much just hit up that sucrose, you know, without going and checking any of, of the other water. Mm-hmm. Whereas the, the the morphine, the THC and the high metragenine um, didn't necessarily like lock in on where the sucrose was. Um, and they were exploring the other parts of the, the other water bottles a lot more. And you can see that sort of same banding differentiation happen when they moved the corner that had the sucrose in it. So like they, you know, they were learning where it was, but then they switched the corner on them and they had to relearn where it was. Mm-hmm. Now, could they have just been um, like feeling loose and not sore and their muscles were just sort of kicking and they were just exploring more in general. So they're like behaviorally activated and therefore, they had more nose pokes in all of the corners of the of the um, IntelliCage. There seems to be like other interpretations you could um, make in that case. If we're just looking at like the percentage of correct responses in which corner and how long it took them. However, with the baseline treatments, um, activity and familiar cage, yeah. So like um, Figure Two sort of establishes that there wasn't necessarily that they were just exploring more um, corners in the cage. It was actually that they were just incorrectly guessing where the sucrose was. It's, it's a cool study design and I'm not knocking the study design at all, but so like when I say, 
could it be that they're just exploring more? Like the researchers obviously had thought about that and speak to that in the results, but in isolation, there's like other reasons you could postulate as to why this was, why they're seeing this behavior. In that figure four, it's like uh, even the ones treated with morphine, THC, and high-dose mitragynine with that CB1 uh, antagonists are all up there with the uh, untreated mice uh, in terms of place learning right. and reversal learning. Well, I mean, that's, yeah, that's the, that's the, I mean, that's the crutch of this entire paper is essentially say, look, we see these impairments in the percent of correct responses to the correct corner. But if we give them the same treatment with the CB1 and ag- antagonist, then we don't see that learning impairment. That's the main sort of you know take home I think of this paper and what they were trying to establish is is it CB1 receptor modulated? And at least you know maybe we don't know all the stepping stones between there, but it's certainly this behavioral um, effects were were mitigated or extinguished with the with the antagonist. And I guess they don't. Well, they don't really test for other effects like pain um because because i'm wondering if what it would be like to you know take uh, morphine with a cb1 antagonist now like would it be would it be different or even thc uh um or, right so or, like if you did a tail flick test yeah. or a hot plate test yeah and like you know how long it took them to move their tail off of something hot that would be you know, like a, a no susception. And, and like, does it still feel the same, but you're, but you're, you're more focused, your brain works better. Well, yeah. Well, is there, is CB1, is CB1 even involved in the pain relieving effects or is it just that CB1 receptor is involved in sort of learning and memory, especially in the hippocampus. Um, and so it could have no effects at all. Like it, I hear what you're saying. Maybe there, with the CB1 antagonist, there would be, um, either an enhanced like pain relieving effect or reduced pain relieving effect. But I, I don't think that, I don't think that there's precedent to necessarily say that the CB1 is involved in that angle of psychopharm. So I, I think this is wrong, but C, does CBD act at all um, on, on the CB receptors? So I read something that said it's an antagonist, but I don't think that's right. Is it? Because yeah. I'm just wondering if it regulates the THC. Because I have I have my one one tincture I take when I just want to relax. Well, it's a little bit different than you know. So it's anti-inflammatory is like where the oh. pain relief comes from. Whereas with opiates, um, it's like blocking the pain signals. Okay. And yeah. So I don't think I don't think it is an antagonist. Um, of CB1, but it certainly does have activity there. Yeah. Yeah. I was just wondering like if you could take CBD with uh, some of these other things and oh, I see wouldn't it, impair yeah. you cognitively. I think what the, in the context of being a CB1 receptor antagonist, it's like in the context of if THC is making you too high and like anxious and paranoid, you can take CBD and that will bind at the CB1 receptor, but not lead to its activation. And it will like reduce the effects of THC activation at those receptors. Mm -hmm. But yeah, whether or not that would, so if CBD was an antagonist, much like this compound NIDA 4120, then would we see the same effects to the same degree? I don't know. It's a good, uh, good hypothesis. And, and I'm wondering, like, if you could take that NIDA 
four one zero two zero and like if you get too high or something and you eat a <laughs> high dose edible and that that would would that make you not high like i'm just wondering exactly what what's going on with the mice in terms of like cognitive impairment does that just mean they're high or i would assume that there's some degree of like similarities to what cbd and this chemical but yeah i would say like all of these um all of these chemicals that are just like you know given numbers uh are like research chemicals and certainly don't okay. have very many uh like established use in humans and yeah. how that would potentially affect people yeah well that's pretty interesting because i i don't really know um much about how it, whether uh kratom or my acts on cannabinoid receptors i didn't i've never really thought about it i don't think we've talked about it before well i think it potentiates i mean we've known that yeah. if you take um like opiate painkillers and you take it with medical cannabis that like you're going to feel the effects of the opiates um, more strongly than you would if you were to just take them in isolation. So there's definitely like clear overlap and potentiation and potentiation is similar to like the sensitization that they're discussing here in that like it takes less amount of the active drug in order to feel the same effects. So we know that there's overlap there, but there's, uh, you know, of course, you know, everything, the devil's in the details and there's just you get to the point where it's like, well, do we even know anything that's going on in there? I mean, we do, but it's it's never as clear cut as as we'd ho- hope it would be. My tragedy enhances resistant to punishment and sucrose seeking. This is air puff punishment. So they, I thought that was pretty funny. They put like a puff of air. Yeah, yeah. Where not much of a punishment, is. but I guess it yeah, was, yeah it'll, it'll startle you for sure. But like, it's not like a. An electric shock or something. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was. That's what I thought it was going to be. And I looked at it, it was an air puff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they say, <laughs> "Screw the air puff. I'm high and I want some sugar." Um, yeah, and I guess if you ever um, like blow in your dog's face, they like you know they tweak out when you do that. So maybe it's similar. What is uh, the immunostaining? I guess it's um, has something to do with Figure Five here. So this is the antibodies that were washed over the brain tissue cultures, and the staining represents the CB1 receptors. So positive and negative controls, immune reactive fibers in the uh, molecular layer, a positive control. It's a positive control, negative negative controls. It's like they want to um, demonstrate that brain-wide, tissue-wide, where there are CB1 receptors, we're getting a staining. And where there are not, we're not getting as much staining. And then then there's particular like brain they were looking at the hippocampus and the uh, VTA. Okay. Um, but these are like parts of the other brain, you know, cere- cerebellar molecular layer uh, where there are CB receptors, but it wasn't necessarily what they were targeting in the experiment. I thought that, you know, overall, in terms of like, a lot of the papers that we have reviewed on the journal club, this is one of the best in terms of like the latest and greatest of behavioral psychopharm. You know, they're using automated uh, IntelliCage system. They're looking at the like metabolic profiles um, or like protein expression and protein density, as well as genetic changes, up or down regulation um, genetically. So it, it covers that multiple levels of analysis that I think like um, is very characteristic of, you know, 21st century neuroscience research. So I, I, I definitely give them um, mad kudos on 
number one, having a, the 100 mice. So having a, like a, a thorough um, sample size group with very clearly delineated treatment groups, um, a high and low metragenine, and then um, looking behaviorally and, and then down across those levels of analysis. So, you know, in terms of if anybody wants to, uh, any of the listeners want to dig into a paper, I would recommend this one. If you're thinking about getting into behavioral pharmacology, this is a really good article to sort of prepare you for the scope of what, like, what labs are putting out these days you know, in, in several other papers, and it just has to be that way. But, you know, I've, I know that I've said of papers in the past, like, uh, well, they should have added some behavioral, they should have added some some genetic, you know, just some of the sections in this paper could have been published on their own, but they waited, uh, you know, to collect all this data and submit it as one package, which I thought was um, very well done. I wish that there was a little bit less of the drug hysteria and like, you know, just starting a sentence off blanketly by saying it's a widely abused plant-based drug preparation. It just seems to me politically motivated, not necessarily scientifically motivated. Um, But, you know, we're not in the, in the business of trying to like pump those up or pump those down, I suppose. We're just supposed to be reading the paper for what it is. Yeah. And uh, it's also worth mentioning they're in Malaysia where uh, Kratom is still illegal. So they probably have uh, different kinds of pressures. there studying an illegal mm-hmm. compound than, than uh, we do here. They have a legal uh, grow facility there. And I spoke to Darshan Singh. He's more of a social scientist. Uh, he was on the podcast before, but he is at uh, University of Science Malaysia. But the thing is, he's done because I'm I'm trying to like think of anywhere where there's uh, evidence of cognitive impairment in uh, in like social science studies. Because I think he's he's done a study on long term creative consumers and. It found that they had no psych, like there were wasn't any more psychosis in the sample size than there would be normally. So it was like kratom doesn't appear to induce psychosis, and I think mm-hmm. I think he's also done uh, cognitive impairment studies of uh, long term kratom consumers and found that there was no significant cognitive impairment in the group that he looked at so i'm kind of like i'm kind of like trying to link this to how what it is in uh the real world and um i don't know maybe it maybe it comes out and in a different way that's uh less uh obvious i was gonna say too yeah cognitive impairment in humans like you know might as well be a spectrum of of like four or five different cognitive attributes so that's why Mm -hmm. i was sort of trying to be clear at the beginning about this is about the rate of learning more specifically the number of correct responses in choosing a sucrose place pe- preference it's more learning and memory and like acquisition of behavior and uh, uh rewarding or extinguishing of that behavior yeah. it's a proxy for cognitive impairments but of course when you jump from mice to humans what constitutes a cognitive impairment is different things and open to interpretation certainly thank you dr jonathan cachet check him out on social media at jay cachet check us out on twitter at kratom science and on facebook please like subscribe rate review the podcast the music is captain big wheel the song is called moon runner kratom science journal club is produced by me Brian Gallagher for KratomScience.com. Take care.